Healy, and joining me here in the studio today is Moni Kenson. Hello. Uh, just the two of us today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're here to deliver to you uh, kind of a special episode, so we're going to be giving you a whistle-stop tour of the Blue Dot Festival, which both of us were at, oh, is it about a month ago now? Yeah, it's around about that. Goodness, yeah. that's scary. Yeah, let's not, let's <laughs> yeah. not think about Let's that. not go there. <laughs> um, so the Blue Dot Festival took place at the Jodrell Bank Observatory um, in July, and Monique has, uh, went around Blue Dot with her recorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interviewed a bunch of people who were there. So so she's interviewed Vicky Dewar-Fowler, Abby Stone, Kat Pressland, Isabel Large and Paul Denton on just a bunch of topics. There were a lot of people um, representing different fields of research there, I guess, as well as musicians and other entertainers. Um, and so Monique has interviewed them. Uh, and now we're going to listen to those. Yeah, the topics are fairly broad because it was basically there was at Blue Dot there were lots of stands with scientists on, as you were saying, all demonstrating their research to the public. And I just wandered up to ones I thought were interesting. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and asked if anyone would chat to me. Uh, um, so it's very um, there's no real it's not really astronomy based as much, but there is lots of different areas of science and things that I just generally thought were pretty cool. Yeah, I mean it should hopefully give you an idea of what it was like to be there, which was a mm-hmm. uh, tremendous fun. Although I spent most of it actually just swamped with kind of JBCA outreach stuff so mm. I didn't get I'm excited to um, hear about this too because I didn't get a chance <laughs> so you're also getting a glimpse of the festival <laughs> exactly because I spent most of it um, inside in the, the, the was it the Star Pavilion I forget which one I was in a, a dark room it was very warm there was lots of people I was on my feet it was tremendous fun now in fairness I'm making mm-hmm. it sound terrible but actually it was brilliant um, I was emceeing talks I think for most mm-hmm. of it and generally running around the place and trying to be everywhere at once yes that sounds very much like working at festival. yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> or I was either that or out working with the sun spotter because every now and then the sun would come out in general the weather was lovely but uh, mm-hmm. sometimes it would get really sunny so you'd run out with the sun spotter uh, which is a way of looking at the sun and people were looking at the sunspots and we were looking at the sunspots and it was mm-hmm. very fun and I had to slather myself in factor 30 <laughs> oh god yes yeah, and so we were there <laughs> we had these black t-shirts we all had black JBCA t-shirts mm-hmm. uh, and I was wearing black leggings just not prepared for the weather <laughs> it was not pretty I was not expecting it to be so fine and actually, so myself and Monique have actually just come, uh, this is unrelated to Blue Dot, but another cool thing that the two mm-hmm. of us have, have just been at, we've just met actually with Julia Tizard, um, who's the Vice President of Virgin Galactic and um, Manchester, University of Manchester PhD graduate uh, in astrophysics. About 12 years ago? Yeah, about 12 years ago. And she's just, um, by kind of happenstance, back in the UK, she just got married and she's back on a little holiday with her husband and her two kids. And she had an informal meeting just now with uh, physics PhD students, which the two of us just went to, which was a oh. lot of fun, wasn't it? That was a nice surprise. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I think yeah, I was so, so intimidated by her because I think she's really, really cool. I was uh, doing my research on her and like, she's vice president of Virgin Galactic and she runs marathons and she... She's running a marathon to the North Pole. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> as if, like, it's, who says? Who runs the marathon? Says, do you know what? That was a bit tame. Yeah. I think I'm going to do that, except 
in the Arctic Circle. <laughs> so, but anyway, so that's just a little side note. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, and and no, she was talking a little bit about the progress with Virgin Galactic as well, which, which is, is really cool. Yeah. So yeah, they've um, been doing a bunch of test flights of their Unity mm-hmm. Unity spaceship, which is kind of so it's not like a spaceship that goes straight up. Um, it sort of takes off. It's got this big mothership. They all take off together and then the mothership drops the, it's really cool. You should go look at some videos of it. Um, That's how I've not seen this. Wow. Oh my God. It's insane. So, so it's basically like, so if you can imagine the spaceship itself looks a bit like, almost like a Concorde. It's that mm-hmm. kind of shape. Uh, and then it's flanked on either side by two other planes, which mm. are all connected. They're all connected over, over the top by like yeah. kind of a t- two long wings. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like the way on a normal airplane, you know, the, the wings go up from side to side, mm-hmm. um, except in this case, instead of just one plane being yep. attached to it, there's three oh. and it all takes off together. They all go up in the air and then the mothership, which comprises the mm-hmm. two planes on either side, the fuselage, I guess we'll call it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, <laughs> the technically <laughs> appropriate term. So that drops the unity uh, spacecraft mm-hmm. and then it just it's the video is very unnerving so it, it, it so detaches sci-fi. it detaches mm-hmm. and it's a little self-contained vehicle mm-hmm. that's the word they use they call it the vehicle um it detaches and it drops down and then the mothership flies away off mm-hmm. um and at the moment so all it's doing is gliding they're not testing the engines yet so they just drop it and glide it back to the runway yeah uh, with no power, which is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's people in it, like, it's not just like being dropped mm-hmm. down to the ground, but, but, you know, to see it just like falling down, you're just like, oh, it was giving me itchy feet. They've done a bunch of successful glide tests, and mm-hmm. the next step will be to do a powered test. And, um, they've got this really cool feathering mechanism, which, like, so to, to slow it down on re-entry to stop it from burning up. Yeah, uh, I wondered um, what she meant when she kept yeah, saying when so, you feather. <laughs> exactly. So as anyone who's played Kerbal Space Program program will know um re-entry is hard and everything <laughs> goes on fire and, <laughs> and everything explodes if you don't um if you don't slow yourself down and if you're not i'm not like 100 percent clear on how the feathering works but i think like it's just these all these little movable parts that deploy mm-hmm. so like again i think if you imagine like when I you're landing know. in an airplane you know, the flaps go up i, yeah, I think yeah. it's a little mm-hmm. bit like that mm-hmm. but i don't know the ins and outs <laughs> yeah. um cool so anyway so it was great fun to meet her and she was there with her husband and her two young kids and it was fun I really liked seeing a successful woman there mm-hmm. with her children being like this is normal it's possible to work mm-hmm. and have a family you know it's possible mm-hmm. to you know she runs her marathons so she was she mm-hmm. was cool I want to be her back to Blue Dot which is mm-hmm. what this episode is actually about yep. um, without further ado shall we get on to the first interview mm-hmm. uh, so the first interview Monique is speaking with Vicky Dewar Fowler uh, she's from the British Antarctic Survey and she's going to be talking about zooplankton in the polar regions I'm here at the Blue Dot Festival with uh, Vicky Dewar Fowler from the British Antarctic Survey. Um, welcome to the Jodcast. Hello. Um, so I thought I'd just, you know, quickly grab you and ask a little bit about your research. As you said, you're a PhD student split between the University of East Anglia and the British Antarctic Survey. So what are you working on? Um, so I'm working on zooplankton in polar regions. So that's both the Antarctic and the Arctic. Um, zooplankton are tiny little creatures in our oceans. They're found in all our oceans, but I'm particularly looking at those in cold waters. Um, I'm looking at their behaviour. So I want to know how often they go up and down in the water column current theory is that they go, um, they'll come up at dusk and they feed in the surface waters on the phytoplankton overnight to avoid predators and then they go back down during the daytime once again to avoid predators so they're in the dark waters. 
Um, but I want to know if this is actually true because um, some recent research suggests that this is not true. Um, I will then, with that, I can look at how much carbon they're taking from the surface waters by eating the phytoplankton and how much they're putting into the deeper waters when they're migrating back down. And if they're doing it more often, that means more carbon in the deeper waters. If they're doing it less often, it means the carbon is being recycled in surface waters. So it's just an interesting thing to know as we're going ahead and looking at climate change and carbon sequestration and blue carbon. Um, and what would that mean if they were taking carbon down into the deeper ocean? Like, What would be the consequences of that? So if they're taking carbon down into the deeper water, that's really good for us because it means they're removing carbon from our atmosphere and our surface waters where it's dissolving into our ocean and they're moving it down to the deeper waters where it's less likely to be able to come back up to the surface. So in effect, they may be in a hidden source of carbon sequestration um, that we just don't really know very much about and it's, it's about to become like I'm working with a team and we're hoping to try and work out how much carbon these animals are taking in and putting in the deeper waters in the hope we can kind of work out if they're helping us or not. No, that sounds really, uh, really interesting and very relevant to now, as you're saying, with all of the interest in climate change and so on. Um, so you mentioned to me earlier that as part of your research, you've been to Antarctica. What was that like? Like, I just can't even imagine. Yeah, that's great. Um, the Antarctic is absolutely stunning. It's a beautiful place. Um, I was lucky enough, having only started my PhD in October, I was on a ship in December. So we spent Christmas on the ship. Um, we actually managed to sail down to Rothera, which is quite rare, because we usually only do that as a logistics um, event. But we were lucky enough to be able to go and actually set foot on the Antarctic continent. And it's absolutely stunning. It's one of the... It's the prettiest place I've ever been, I think. Um, you're faced with white scenery. There's icebergs on the way in. These icebergs are really big. Like, they're so much bigger than you imagine they would be. And then you've got 24 hours of sunlight a day. So it's just, it's a completely different world. You lose track of time. Everything's so pristine. And the animals there are absolutely fantastic. Um, you have humpback animals coming up to the boat. Um, fin whales swimming around. You'll have penguins darting away from you. Seals on the icebergs. It's, um, um, wandering albatross are fairly common sight as well, which is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> That just sounds incredible. I am so jealous. Um, was there anything that like really took you by surprise or that you found particularly difficult on that trip? Because obviously it's such an extreme environment. Um, I think for me, it was the time away over Christmas. It was the first time I'd spent Christmas away from my own family. Um, so to be in a, it was quite a small group of scientists. Um, so we were there on Christmas Day. That was quite difficult. But we do have a phone line. So we can ring out to our families on Christmas and New Year. We're away for New Year as well. Um, so, yeah, I think that was the most difficult thing. Um, I mean, I'm still in shock about the, the scenery and the wildlife. That I mean, I'm lucky enough to be going back again this year. And I really want to see killer whales. Some people on the boat did see them this year, but we go on to shifts. So I was on a split shift. So I was working dawn and dusk. So I didn't see much daylight. Thank you for giving us an insight both into your research and also what it's like to go to Antarctica. Thank you very much.
You're welcome. Okay, so that was Monique um, talking to Vicky Durafowler from the British Antarctic Survey about zooplankton and about zooplankton dispersing carbon or moving carbon around. In the oceans, up and ocean. down. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what what I'm just particularly envious of is the fact that she's been to the Antarctic. I know. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to go there. <laughs> I was always kind of starstruck because I was like, you've been to the Antarctic. How often? You don't meet people who've even been No, exactly. Although it's, um, so it's a funny one and it's one that kind of comes up again and again going to the Antarctic and actually my boyfriend uh, for a long time his dream job was because um, there's a radio telescope in the Antarctic yeah, yeah, yeah. and he always has wanted to go down there and work there because they take on one or two people a year to mm-hmm. go down and just stay there for the year and like man it and he always mm-hmm. thought that would be a brilliant way to like you just go down there for the year uh, you basically can't spend any money because it's not That's like true, yeah. there's a Forever 21 in the South Pole <laughs> You just have to order, pile up Amazon deliveries. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it's not as even it's not even as though they can even deliver anything yeah. to you there. Um, so you know, you go down there, you um, earn a load of money. What well, a load of money, but you know, you're not spend spending yeah. anything. And then you just come back and sit on your hoard of cash and tell cool <laughs> stories to people about how you used to live in the Antarctic. Just imagine <laughs> like a dragon on this hoard of cash. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what it would be like. <laughs> Instead of like smog, you've got <laughs> a radio astronomer turned data scientist. <laughs> but I mean, we are like dragons in a sense. In some uh, ways, yeah. 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 We're certainly known physicists who were very like dragons. Oh, gotcha. Breathing fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, moving on, we're now going to talk about cool people who studied the Anthropocene. Uh, so, Monique is going to interview Abby Stone. I'm here with Abby Stone from the University of Manchester. Uh, welcome to the Jodcast. Hi. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing here at the Blue Dot Festival? Okay, sure. Yeah, today we are introducing people to the concept of the Anthropocene. Um, are we in a whole new geological era where we have altered the Earth so much that we've left an indelible mark? And how do you even define a geological era to begin with? Well, this is an interesting question, actually, because what we've usually done is had everything ready in the rock record. So we dig, we find a place where the rock changes very dramatically, or the the biological record, the fossils in it change a lot. And we say that's a big environmental shift, that's a change. So it's actually quite difficult to define something before it's turned to rock. And that's one of our bigger challenges with the Anthropocene. There seems to be a really clear idea that we are changing the Earth enough. Atmospheric gases, plastics in the environment, um, things from nuclear fallout. But actually being able to dig around and find it until it's become rock is a bit of a challenge. And that's why there's a lot of debate and a lot of argument about exactly whether we're in the Anthropocene, whether it started, and how we should define it. Whether it's when we started building pyramids, when we started uh, sedentary agriculture when it was when we started doing sort of more extreme things to the environment in the Industrial Revolution, for example. Yeah, and so I guess some of the things that people would obviously think of are things like climate change, but I guess there's less obvious impacts that we're having as well. Yes, definitely. So, I mean, we certainly see in terms of anthropogenic climate change, um, and that's really nicely recorded in air bubbles in ice sheets uh, for the North Pole and the South Pole. We can see really clearly how we have accelerated, well, sorry, amplified the amount of um, CO2 and, and methane in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere. And that's a, a record where it gets locked into ice, a bit like getting locked into to rock. But yes, if you dig around and 
if you imagine what a landfill site might look like in 10,000 years, what are we going to see that's preserved there? It's probably the stuff that breaks down really slowly, particularly the plastics. We might find loads and loads of stuff that we eat as well. So chicken bones, for example, and uh, you know other stuff like that. So yes, there's going to be a marker when we come back and dig holes. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And I never even think about, you know, because I think about plastics and stuff being left behind, but chicken bones is something that would never have crossed my mind at all. But I guess when you think about the amount of chicken consumed, it's enormous. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's one of the, I think, quite quirky things that people have picked up on when it comes to working out what our market will be. Um, I can't remember. I don't actually have any facts on exactly how many chickens, but there are some nice facts out there about how many where, where chickens came from and how we've moved them all around the globe and domesticated oh, yeah. them and and exploded the number of chickens there wouldn't be so many chickens if there weren't so many humans basically yeah no that makes sense and to be honest i have never considered where chickens originally came from <laughs> um, so it's definitely given me something to think about so as well as being here to talk about the anthropocene you're also a researcher as well so what's your area of interest so i'm interested in deserts mainly so um i'm interested in trying to find out how they've changed through time and why they're there in the first place whether at certain points of the time they have been less desert-like and what you find if you dig far enough back in the past particularly in north africa is that there are times actually where the sahara wasn't very much like the sahara as we know it today um, it was sufficiently wetter that actually people have suggested it was the green sahara so ending around six thousand years ago uh, there was enough moisture from the way that the climate has changed naturally through time that actually there were lots of rivers flowing through the sand seas they became greener crocodiles were able to make it from the sub-sahara right across to the mediterranean and you find fossils of fish either side as well so it was all connected up through through green river systems and this is probably really useful at other points in the past it's happened time and time again as it's got wetter and drier wetter and drier during these wetter intervals you have these green connections across deserts and our species have made use of that. And they've made use of that during their expansions out of Africa uh, and through the migration patterns that we've taken through the Sahara, through Arabia, at times where it's been wetter in the past. So you can go to deserts and find out a lot about how, how climate's changed. No, that's fascinating. And I've never even thought about the human story of that as well. Yeah. Um, and so I, one of the questions I, you asked me earlier, actually, about um, how much sun do we think we <laughs> yes. use every uh, was it every day, every, every year? year? That was the one. And I just completely guessed at millions of tons. But you blew me away with the actual answer. Yeah. So we, well, the, the thing is, we use, we use sand for so many things. Obviously, we use it for glass. You melt things down, you make glass bottles, but we use that in electric hob, uh, hobs, chopping boards, our smartphones. We're carrying loads of melted down sand with us every day for the, the glass screen on our, on our phones, but it's construction. Construction's the thing that accelerates that figure and, uh, makes up 60%. Sand makes up 60% of concrete. So the, the thing that drives that figure is, our buildings and our roads um so globally we're talking about 40 billion tons per year which is a number i actually find it quite hard to to comprehend even though i work with quite big numbers uh, in some of my research so i've been trying to work out in terms of blue whales how, how much that would be it would be 200 million blue whales and i still can't imagine what 200 million blue whales is uh, but if we take the eiffel tower that one's quite useful five million Eiffel Tower's worth weight of sand is used every year. That's still quite a difficult one, I think, to wrap your, your head around. And that's twice as much sand moved around the environment exported. Dubai uses sand from China to build its largest, the, the tallest building in the world. We as humans move twice as much sand than all the rivers in the world. 
That's incredible. Wow. That's, yeah, I just, I can, I think I never realized how much sand is used. And yeah, as soon as you say concrete, I kind of go, oh yeah, I did know that. Uh, that makes sense. Um, and so you were saying that Dubai actually imports sand from China as well, which yes. is something that wouldn't seem logical to me because I would have thought <laughs> Dubai has a lot of sand. So why would they need to do that? Well, so yeah, desert sand is, is one thing. Um, and the problem with desert sand is actually it's a bit too smooth and a bit too round. So if you've been to a desert when it's windy, you get a lot of sand blown up and uh, hitting against your legs, maybe even bouncing high enough to hit you in the face. As the sand is blown around by the wind, all its rough edges get knocked off. So you end up with really smooth, round grains, which don't stick together well. They're useless to make cement. So actually, we need jagged sand. We need the kind of sand that's been knocking around in water and keeps those sharp edges. So sand that we find in rivers, on beaches and at the bottom of the ocean floor. So Dubai has used all its useful sand from the marine environment to build the massive palm out in the Gulf for real estate, to build the, those connected world, supposed to be world archipelago, which they still haven't covered in buildings. Um, they had, didn't have any of the useful sand to make concrete left. So they now import it from places like China, in particular Australia, to build that building and to, to make that glass. So there is a global trade in sand going on background that you're probably not aware of. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And also, you would never, to, to my mind, smoother sand would be better, right? But I guess you can't make sand castles with smooth sand either, right? Very true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you won't see it, but a little picture here. So if you, if you looked under a microscope at sand from the desert, mm. it would look really round and it wouldn't have any jagged edges. But if you took some from the beach or you took some that you'd scooped off the bottom of the ocean floor, it would look a bit more like a kind of salt grain. It's kind of jaggedy and rough and, and those bits will stick together really well and they'll stick together with the other stuff in cement, the, the smaller particles. Ah, and so actually if you had both types of sand could you feel the difference or is it on such a small scale you couldn't tell well that's a really good question I mean if I had to quiz you on how big you thought a sand grain was would you have an idea uh, <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> that's a good point I think I, I keep thinking about like I've sat on many beaches and I should know this and I really don't know um, small enough to get everywhere yes exactly um, I would have gone big, bigger than a oh I don't know a micron? I don't know. Well, so, you know, yeah, micron. So, bigger than 63 microns okay. um, and less than two millimetres. So, for people not familiar with microns, that's 0.0625 millimetres okay. up to two millimetres. That's actually pretty big. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And beyond two millimetres, so this is very, well, it's very interesting to a, to a geek like me. Yeah. Bigger than sand, it becomes gravel or granules. And bigger than that is a pebble. Bigger than that is a cobble, like a cob, like a roll you deep. Bigger than that is a boulder. And smaller than sand is called silt. So less than 63 microns, that's silt. Ah, and actually, I have always just thought silt was sandy water. So now I know what silt is. <laughs> um, no, that's good to know. And also, yeah, I never stopped to think about what the distinction was between a pebble and a cobble. Which makes sense, yeah, that someone has gone out and done this. Yeah. Um, so you, you were saying you work a lot, um, you're interested in deserts and um, that kind of thing. What does your day-to-day work actually involve? Like, do you go out to deserts and look there, or what, what do you actually do? Yeah. yeah, so I'm lucky to have quite a varied job. Um, it all starts with taking a field trip to a desert, which is, is something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, it's definitely a perk of the job. Um, go to a desert, find some sand dunes that I want to know something about in terms of the age of the sediment or the chemistry of the moisture in those sand dunes. And I start digging a big hole with some auguring equipment. 
uh, and try get try to get down maybe 12 meters, 15 meters to collect different units because every unit with depth is going to have a different bit of information from a previous point in time stored in it. Uh, I'll take a lot of samples um, wrapped up in bits of black drain pipe, black wrapped in bags, and bring it back to laboratories. Um, and in the laboratories, I'll be trying to work out a couple of things. One is how long some of that sand's been buried underground. And the way you do that is actually quite funky. You heat up uh, or you shine a blue light on some sand that you've kept in the dark and it will glow. And the amount it glows will be proportional to how long it's been buried underground. So minerals like quartz work a bit like a rechargeable battery when they're exposed to radiation. So anything underground is getting all the time bombarded with radiation from the decay of uranium, thorium and potassium. As it does that to a sand grain, to a piece of quartz, electrons are moving around, being given energy, and they move around, and then they get stuck in these little defects in quartz. And they keep getting full through time as it's buried. You keep it dark, bring it back to the lab, shine a light on it or heat it up, and those electrons get energy again, and they move from high energy to low energy, and in doing so, they've got to do something with that energy. So they spit out a photon, which is light. So the amount of light that's coming out of your heated sand grain in the lab is telling you how many hundreds, potentially of thousands of years, your sand grain's been buried and when it last saw the sunlight. So every time it sees light, it loses its signal, builds up the signal when it's dark, when it's buried, light it, expose it to light again in the lab, and you let out that light signal uh, to tell you how long it's been buried underground. Wow, I never, honestly, you're blowing my mind. I never knew sand was so interesting. Sorry. <laughs> I know it's your research, so it must be. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And so, um, one last question. I was thinking, because when I think of a desert and I think of kind of sand blowing around, as you were saying, to me, that sounds like a really dynamic environment. But like, what, over what kind of timescales do you see significant change? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So I guess the last really big change, we were talking before about the Green Sahara. Um, over those sort of timescales, we're talking, so 6,000 years ago and then maybe something like 27,000 years ago, and we go keep going back in 21,000-year cycles. That's a big cycle where we see wetter in deserts recurring every 21,000 years to do with the way that our orbit around the sun has changed. So we do various things in our orbit around the sun in terms of how tilty, so how much the North Pole points towards... Uh, the North Star or not, so how uh, what our axis is doing, but also we change in terms of whether we've taken a, an elliptical shape or a circular shape around the sun, and that orbit is stretched and squeezed. So as these things have changed, the amount of tilt, the amount of, of circular or elliptical, but also there's a kind of wobble. Uh, our Earth is like a spinning top, so sometimes we're pointing towards the North Star, sometimes in the other direction, over 21,000 years. These cycles will have an influence on how much energy we receive at the surface of the Earth. And when the parameters are right and we're receiving more energy over these desert regions, it's changing the amount of moisture that gets pulled onto the land from the ocean through things like monsoons and gives us wetter conditions in deserts. So the way we're going around the sun has a control on terrestrial climate and how wet and dry deserts are in the past. Wow, I love that. And I also love that you've brought it back to astronomy right at the end. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the Jodcast. Great to talk to you. And I hope you have a good weekend. Thanks. 
Awesome. Cool. Okay, that was uh, Monique speaking with Abby Stone. I just think it's so cool that she's a geologist and her surname is Stone. And that, that never occurred to me <laughs> as I was speaking to her. Someone must have pointed it out to her before, though. Yeah, I'm she sure probably she had that, that joke yeah, yeah. a lot. Yeah. Uh, just so our listeners are aware, I'm actually hearing these interviews for the first time uh, right after I introduce them. So uh, <laughs> as I'm introducing them, I'm as clueless as you are. <laughs> it's like a journey of discovery. Yeah, exactly. Hence my slightly vague sort of intros and then afterwards I'm like oh my god that's so cool you just don't ever think like so it's it's beyond even like our kind of archaeological signatures Mm -hmm. that we might leave like you know buildings and yeah yeah, in in terms of the um, anthropocene yeah it was something I never thought about and she started talking about chicken bones (laughs) and then suddenly I stopped and think yeah I thought like yeah, how many chicken bones must there be yeah. from humans? All the chickens. Uh, yeah. So there's going to be like, I don't know, in a million years, there's going to be like a chicken seam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like a little a line of chicken oh, bones. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Things like chicken bones and obviously like plastic is mm-hmm. the big one. And then, um, and then her speciality, which is sand. Yes. I never knew there was so much stuff to know about sand. No, and to be honest, <laughs> but you know, if, if someone had told me before I interviewed her that I'd have a really interesting interview with her I would have been I would have laughed <laughs> and been like oh you know it's sand really it's always the ones mm-hmm. it's always the ones that you're like that sounds like really boring mm-hmm. that turn out to be the most exciting exactly my philosophy is because you know people who work in fields that sound kind of boring have to do so much more to sell them that's true um, yeah. now I actually know why cobblestones cobble. are a specific yeah. thing exactly I never knew that either I didn't know that either yeah cobble I'm, I'm intrigued though that the, the next thing up from a cobble is a boulder so yeah that's quite a big difference in size like, in so when head. we think yeah. of boulder we think of something almost bigger than ourselves that you can climb and a cobble <laughs> is something that you're stepping on it's about an order of magnitude change as well yeah which is, that's guess, true normally how these things are kind of logarithmic yeah, yeah, yeah normally yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and now everyone knows what silt is. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, this, the, this whole Blue Dot weekend was me having a lot of my misconceptions. Yeah. <laughs> um, correct. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, presumably not just you, but, but the general public, that's which true. is uh, yeah. a good thing. Okay, so uh, we'll move on from Abby Stone, the geologist, to Kat Pressland, uh, who's also from the University of Manchester, uh, and she's going to talk about the Royal Society of Chemistry's Life of Water exhibit. I'm here with Kat Pressland from the University of Manchester, but she's also here with the Royal Society of Chemistry. Welcome to the Drugcast. Hi. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing here this weekend at Blue Dot? So our stand is called Life of Water, and we're basically looking at water in a couple of different ways. So we are looking at plastics in the ocean with our fun little hook-a-duck game. Mm-hmm. So we've got questions, and we're looking at different types of plastics that were found in the ocean. And then we're also seeing what they're made out of and whether these particular ones can be recycled or not. So that's a fun little game. We're also looking at water filtration. So we're seeing how it's easier to take larger things out first and then medium and small. And then you can see how you could actually make one of these at home if you want to, seeing the homemade version. But you can also buy them. And we've also got a timed little game so you can see if you can get onto our leaderboard and um, get faster times if you keep going and going at it as well. We've also got um, looking at water to make safe water. Mm-hmm. If you ever happen to be marooned on a desert island um, and you want to get pure water out of salt water, mm-hmm. you can come and see if you can work out what the system would be and we can tell you how to purify water from salt water just using the sun and a few little bits and bobs like a plastic bars and cling film on a rock. And then just to top it all off, because we are at a festival, we've got some glow sticks. So you can come learn about the chemistry of glow sticks. And if you see us near the end of the day as well, we've got some UV paints as well. So 
yeah, I will definitely be back later on. So, what is the chemistry of glow sticks? So, the chemistry of glow sticks is there's two different chemicals within the glow stick. When you snap it, you're actually breaking a little bit of glass that's in there, and it lets the two chemicals react. So, it's a chemical reaction happening, which is why eventually the glow will disappear, because the reaction is complete and it goes. Um, if you keep it really cool, it'll last for longer, but not be as bright. And then if by the sun comes back out again and it gets really hot, um, the sun, the reaction will go faster and that means they'll stop going. So again, get them for later. You just have to listen to the 60 seconds of science of how they actually work and learn about the different dyes that we've also got in them and you can see why the different colours. And yeah, you can get a free glow stick. Um, so you have different dyes and to give different colours. Yeah. Um, is that right? Could you tell me a little bit more about that? So yeah, so um, the chemicals are quite complicated if you looked at them, um, but... There's some, well, it's just general kind of colours. So there's rhodamine B for red, um, rubin for yellow, and then the other ones have very long names. But essentially they're just in there to kind of give a bit of difference. So we've got some red ones, some pink ones, orange ones. And then if you come down, you can come and look at the structures and see what they look like and learn the chemistry about them. That's cool. So wait, so if you didn't have the dyes in, would they just glow white? They'd probably be a kind of greeny colour, more likely. However, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I was just curious. I don't, yeah. But yeah, because it's the same two chemicals that are in there. So you need to have the different dyes in to kind of get lots of different colours because it's just oh, hydrogen peroxide and diphenyloxalate. So it would be kind of just giving out energy. But they'd be probably hard to remember. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense. I was just wondering because I think I always assumed each tube had a different reaction, if that makes sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to make the different colours. Like, you know, when you think, when it, I'm thinking back to like chemistry school, when you put something in a Bunsen burner and it goes a different colour, and I was, yeah, that is where my mind would always have gone. <laughs> yeah, well, if you come here, we can show you the actual chemical reaction and mm. show you what the structures are mm-hmm. and how the two different chemicals react together, form one thing, which then reacts with the dye, and then you get the excited dye. And actually, a little bit of carbon dioxide. Can Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. That's one. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, random little bubbles in there. Come ah, so I noticed one of the other things you had was you had like a, a little foamy elephant thing. You said that had quite some interesting origins. Yeah, so we're looking at how flip-flops are washed up onto beaches and about 90 tonnes are kind of washed up onto Kenyan's beaches. And what they're actually doing, Kenyan people are going around picking up, picking up flip-flops and they've been taught how to wash them, clean them and pack them down and sculpt them into animals. And then they can turn this into an enterprising thing, which they can then sell on. So we bought one of the little elephants, so you can come see a little elephant made out of flip-flops. And it's really cool and really cute. No, that's it's very cool. It's a very interesting use of a plastic that I wouldn't really think of how to reuse. No, I mean, most people would just kind of say flip-flop. Mm-hmm. When, we said, when I said I was buying an elephant made out of flip-flop, people thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> but then I showed them going, actually, no, it does feel like a flip-flop, but... Um, you can see how a lot of work has gone into it and it's a great way to kind of get artists in Kenya to actually first clean up the beaches and then actually make some money out of it. Yeah, that sounds very cool. So you are here um, Blue Dot today talking about water. What's your research though, more generally? Um, so my research actually um, was in nanochemistry um, but I now am an education coordinator for the Royal Society of Chemistry so my remit is to support chemistry education across the northwest through primary through to secondary with resources talking to teachers talking to industry universities and then delivering outreach and creating these things so for rsc members who want to do outreach and want to do it but they don't know how to go about it we set it all up for them give them the activities tell them the training and then do all the research so it's ready to go 
And then, yeah, so it's, it's quite a fun job. Yeah. No, that sounds very cool. It means they just get to rock up and have fun, right? And rock have, up, to... have fun, do it, and not have to stress about going, is this relevant? Is this the right kind of activities? Will people accept this? And that way there's like a whole theme that kind of ties together. Um, so it works quite well in the planet fields because it's looking at the fragile blue earth. And then I feel that these activities work quite well with that theme. Okay, so in that role, would you say, like, what is the misunderstanding that you most often come across in your work, like, in doing kind of chemistry outreach? Um, chemistry outreach, that someone is bound to come across and say, why are you exploding things? Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's all chemistry is, it's the things that explode. Um, but there's so much to do with chemistry, and just trying to make chemistry a bit more accessible, a bit more fun, like, people kind of sometimes recoil when you say chemistry, and it's like... It's not that difficult if you just come and play the little games mm-hmm. and then learn through play. And that's all we're doing here is just to kind of make it a bit more mm-hmm. fun, really. And it's not that scary a subject mm-hmm. if you do it in the right kind of way. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. Well, thank you for speaking to us on the Jodcast. No worries. Okay, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the festival. Yeah, should be fun. Okay, so that was Kat Preslin with some stuff about water and some stuff about glow sticks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure how those two are related, but, yeah, you know, I guess it's a festival. festival. Yeah, glow yeah. sticks. Glow sticks are cool, although not as cool as we thought, it seems. No, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. I was a little bit disappointed, I'll be honest, but, you know... You can't have everything. I found that sand, oh, sand was really interesting. Well, exactly. Maybe, so it balances yeah. out. Sand exactly. is very cool. Glow mm-hmm. sticks, not so much. You know, it's um, also just really cool. I think anything like this is really important. That there's stuff mm-hmm. about water and clean water. Yeah. I think as, you know, as time goes on in general, people are getting more of an awareness mm-hmm. of where water comes from and why it's so important to conserve it. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, because that certainly wasn't a dialogue that was around much when I was a child that I can yeah. remember, but I feel like nowadays there's much more. Yeah, and I, I think more people are becoming aware of it, particularly in big cities where yeah. water is largely recycled. Yeah. So I know in London, at least... Most or most of the wastewater is recycled back into the city. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, not yeah. many people are aware of that right now, but I think over time they are. We'll move on from water awareness to our next interview, which is with Isabel Large, and she's from the South Cheshire Beekeepers Association. I'm now here with Isabel Large from the South Cheshire Beekeepers Association. Welcome to the Jodcast. Hello, my name's Isabel, and I'm a beekeeper. So, what brings you to the Blue Dot Festival? It's not somewhere I necessarily expect to find beekeepers. The head gardener at Jodrell Bank is a beekeeper herself and a member of South Cheshire, and so she has asked us to be present at a week in May and a follow-on at a week here. And there's actually an apiary on site where there are live bees. We are just here today to educate the public and have what we call our virtual hive, which has photographs of bees, but is a real full-sized hive. Oh, wow. And sorry, I just need to double-check. might be a stupid question. An apiary, I'm assuming, is that... An apiary is where we keep bees. Ah, okay, that's good to know. <laughs> um, so could you tell me a little bit more about keeping bees? And Okay, there is an awful lot to learn about beekeeping. It's very popular on the increase at the moment, but people really do need to do a course in beekeeping before they have their own colony of bees. There's a huge amount to learn. They're under threat at the moment, both from pesticides, adverse weather conditions, lack of forage, and we are very, very dependent on them because they are pollinators and a lot of our foods depend on bees and other pollinating insects. Um, And what drew you to beekeeping? I first learned about bees as an A-level student. Um, I'm a scientist and I've always had an interest in bees and now I've got a bit more time. I'm now interested in keeping them and find them absolutely fascinating. 
Ah, and for you, what is the most interesting thing about keeping bees? The fact that they are living creatures, but wild creatures, you can't domesticate them. All you can do is help them. And of course, there's always the honey at the end of it. No, that sounds fascinating. And what what does beekeeping actually involve? I know I kind of have this image of people in the big white suits, but other than that, I have no idea. You have your first small colony of bees, and then it's your responsibility to try and help them build up, and protect or help to protect them from disease or treat them from disease, try and stop them from swarming, which could be a nuisance to other people. During the summer season, it involves you opening up the hive once a week, checking that all's well, that you've got a laying queen, that the hive is building up, it's healthy, there are no problems. Then over the winter months, you need to ensure they've got enough food, you haven't taken too much honey from them, but then you don't open them up for about four months until spring comes again and they start to build up. That sounds like a nerve-wracking four months because you don't know what's happening inside and you kind of get to spring and just have to go, oh, what's there? That's correct. And you can open up your hive and all can be well and you think, great, another year. Or you can open them up and find that they haven't survived the winter and that's devastating. Oh, that sounds awful. (laughs) Yeah. So do you keep any particular types of bees? There are many different types of bees. We're obviously interested in the European honeybee. Um, There are a group of beekeepers in this country who are trying to bring back the traditional black British bee, but most beekeepers um, are bees and mongrels. They've come from all over the place, and and to us they're just honeybees. So you don't have distinct varieties like you do of dogs, but you do have different types in different parts of the world. And is that lack of distinct varieties just because, you know, one of them is more pervasive and has driven out the other, or...? It's just the way they have evolved and they've adapted to the particular conditions. Ours is the European honeybee, which can survive our climate. Um, It's very good at putting stores away for the winter, because obviously during our winters, then they can't go out and forage because of the cold. And what would you say is like the biggest challenge about keeping bees? Because obviously you're saying it's a very complex thing, you have to go on a course to learn about it, but what for you is the thing you find most difficult? The biggest challenge is trying to keep down the levels of a parasite called Varroa, which is now in most of the beehives in this country. It reduces the immunity of bees to their natural viral-caused diseases. There are lots of other diseases, and of course there is the problem of this colony collapse, which is first seen in America. We're not entirely sure, but it could be because the bees are under stress, it could be because of disease, but if you've got diseased bees, then you end up with dead bees. Oh, that sounds sad. Um, So what's this colony collapse that you're talking about? There could be a number of reasons. It could be the way the beekeeper treats them. It could be the fault of chemicals, pesticides. It could be the weather. It it could be all sorts of things. It could even be climate change. We just don't know. Um, We don't see a lot of it in this country. Our biggest problem is the various diseases which can reduce the numbers in the hives. And so we have to be on the lookout. Some are notifiable, some we can treat for, some we can't. All we can do is try and ensure our bees are given the best possible conditions to allow them to naturally develop. They are, after all, a wild creature. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. And is there anything that our listeners could do to help with the bee problems that we're seeing? Obviously, I know they can't necessarily create their own hives, but is there anything that we should be doing, whether it's campaigning or anything else? They can start by planting bee-friendly plants, which don't just only benefit honeybees, but also all the other pollinators. Other than that, it's just 
supporting the beekeepers wherever they can, buying natural honey rather than imported honey, and being prepared to pay the price of beekeepers' honey rather than the cut price honey from supermarkets, which we have a certain amount of evidence to indicate that some of it is not all it's made out to be. Yeah, I did see some statistic, I can't remember exactly what it was, but recently saying about how much honey in the supermarkets are fake, which I just couldn't, and that a lot of it is sugar syrup. I'm not, I'm not claiming to know exactly what that is, but it, it amazed me. Yes, that's absolutely true. We know that some countries are exporting far more honey than mm-hmm. they can actually produce, and it's possible that it is adulterated with sugar or the bees are fed on just sugar and make a sort of honey from that. We also know that the Manuka honey, which commands huge prices, more is, ex- more is sold in this country than New Zealand, which is the natural origin of Manuka honey, more than they can actually export. So somebody somewhere is making a lot of money. Ah, well, that's always good to know. Well, thank you for talking to us today on the Jodcast. It's fascinating to learn a little bit about beekeeping, and hopefully some of our listeners will go away and plant some bee-friendly plants. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay, so that was uh, Isabel Large speaking to Monique um, about bees. I mean, bees are so cool, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but but terrifying. So, so <laughs> you scared of bees? Well, like, no, I'm not scared of bees. Actually, bees are fine. Uh, I don't like wasps the way they kind of fly up mm. your face. And they do actually look similar all the time. So a lot yeah. of the things people think are wasps are actually bees. So yeah, because um, like you know, we're used to kind of the bumblebee mm-hmm. kind of type, but I think like kind of worker bees yeah. are much more wasps. Like the Manchester symbol, actually. Yes, yeah. exactly. No, but bees are wonderful. Um, and we were just saying that there's actually a, a beekeeping course out at Chartrell Bank yeah. because we keep bees at Chartrell mm-hmm. Bank. Um, so moving on, finally to our last interview, Monique will speak to Paul Denton, who's from the British Geology Survey, and he's going to correct Monique's misconceptions about geology. <laughs> Hi, I'm here with Paul Denton from the British Geological Survey. Um, welcome to the Jodcast. Thanks very much. And um, what are you doing here at the festival? So we've got an activity based on earthquakes and seismology. Um, so we're trying to we're trying to demonstrate some of the principles of tectonic activity on a world map, and also show something about how we measure earthquakes and how earthquake waves travel through the Earth. Um, how do earthquake waves travel through the Earth? Well, there's two different types of waves. There's primary waves and secondary waves, which physicists call longitudinal and transverse waves. At the festival here, we're demonstrating those with slinkies. So we've got kids making waves go up and down slinkies. And do those two waves travel through the Earth in the same way, or do they travel differently? Well, I mean, one of the, one of the reasons seismologists are so interested in those types of waves is precisely because they have different properties. So the P waves travel faster, and because they're longitudinal waves, they can also travel through solids and liquids, whereas the, the secondary waves, the S waves, are transverse waves, and they can only travel through solids. So that's one of the reasons that we know that the core of the Earth is a liquid because of monitoring how these different types of waves travel through the Earth. I never knew that at all. So um, you said that um, these P waves and S waves can't both travel through liquids, but I know in the ocean it's a combination of longitudinal transverse waves creates the... Um, I'm making hand signals, which is not helpful yeah. on a podcast, but that's what gives you kind of the wave type structure on the top. So why is that different? Well, the, the ocean waves only exist at a free surface 
So they, they only exist in the, in the top few hundred meters of the, of the ocean. We actually get similar types of waves on the Earth, in the solid Earth, where we get that type of surface wave that just travels around the surface of the Earth. And it's the same type of motion. It's a, it's a retrograde elliptical particle motion, but it only exists in the top few wavelengths of the, of the Earth. And it's the interface between the free, the free surface and the, and the solid Earth. I had no idea you got those kind of waves on the Earth. So that's incredible. Ah, okay. Um, and so what does studying these waves help to tell you now? So you said it, that originally provided evidence for the liquid core, but what else are you trying to learn from them now? Well, nowadays, because we've got so many sensors distributed all over the world, we can do tomographic studies. So we can actually map the internal structure of the Earth in three dimensions by seeing how these waves propagate through the Earth. I mean, it's the same... It's the same maths as medical tomography. Um, and we're just using earthquakes as energy sources and then thousands of receivers distributed around the world as the, as, as the detectors. Oh, okay. That's fascinating. So you have this, you're constructing like a 3D model of the Earth, essentially. Well, the Earth is 3D, but yeah, the 3D yeah. model of the Earth. Um, and so by studying earthquakes, you can learn more about the Earth, but also... Does studying those help you to understand future earthquakes and that kind of thing as well? Well, I mean, we can, we can by measuring earthquakes that have happened in the past, mm-hmm. we can build statistical models mm-hmm. of how likely earthquakes are to happen in different places in the future, mm-hmm. um, which is very useful for when you're designing a, a building code or trying to, trying to design buildings that will withstand the most likely amount of shaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that scientists are doing now is, there, is that, that we can't predict earthquakes, but we can do what we call early warning. So if we measure an earthquake as it happens, because the, the shaking waves take a finite amount of time to reach their destination, if we can get a message that an earthquake has happened, it can give us 10 or 20 seconds warning that severe shaking is about to happen. It doesn't sound like very long, but if you tie that into an automatic monitoring system, so in Japan at the moment it's tied to the bullet trains, so they automatically slow down if an earthquake is, is, has happened and they know that the shaking is going to disrupt the tracks in front of it. That's amazing. Like, Sorry, this is blowing my mind. That's like the future is now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're trying to do it in America as well. They've got the they've got the sensors set up in California. They just need to get some funding from the federal government to actually roll that out as a as, as a statewide early warning system. Oh, fantastic! And I know it's one of the other things you've got on your stand is this huge world map showing all the fault lines and so on. And I, w- I have a quick question about them, and I won't answer them because there's some really really tiny plates <laughs> on there. There are like so you've got the you know the big Eurasian plate, but there's really tiny ones that look like the size of a small country. Why why are they so small? I mean, it's it's the classic problem in the whole of science. If, if you look at the big picture, it looks quite simple. Yeah. But as soon as you start looking at the details around the edges, things get more complicated. And it, it's I mean, it's almost a fractal problem in that the closer you look, the more complicated it becomes. So as soon as you start looking at, at particularly where two or three plates meet in a in a triple junction. It, it just becomes really, really complicated. So studying these microplates and how they're moving, um, you know, it's an ongoing area of research for a lot of scientists. 
So we're still not exactly sure where these microplates, as you call them, like how they use the form. Well, I mean, the whole idea of a plate as a rigid block that moves as a single entity is a simplification. So obviously there, there are deformations that are happening within plates. Um, and in some cases, it's actually more effective to model what's happening as a plate deforming rather than as interactions happening at the edges of plates. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, because I think I have this yeah, very simplistic image in my head of like plates floating on something. Um, so it's inter- of course it is more complicated. It's yeah, everything yeah. always is. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean it's and nowadays we've got the tools with with satellite imagery. We can do we can do um, radar interferometry mm-hmm. to measure displacements after earthquakes. We can use super accurate GPS to actually measure plate motions in real time. So we can, we, we, you know, we're, we're able to generate a huge amount of data, and then the challenge is to is to try and understand that data. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same in all sciences. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so one last question: You said you do um, quite a bit of outreach in this area. It, would you, well, if there is one, what would you say is the biggest misconception people tend to have when it comes to uh, geolo- uh, geology or seismology that you would like to iron out? Well, I mean, one of the things that, that we, 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 we often come up against is when people think about the structure of the Earth, they have the crust, the mantle, and the core, and they know that the crust is solid, and they know that the core is liquid, but a lot of people think that the mantle is liquid as well because of models that they've seen of convection happening in the, in the mantle, whereas from a, from a scientific point of view, the mantle is solid. Um, because it's capable of supporting shear waves, the, the S waves, the transverse waves, which can only occur if a material has got sufficient shear strength to support them. Um, so we try and get away from that misconception that plates are floating on top of a runny mantle. It, it's not really like that. The mantle is, if you had a piece of it in your hand, it would look like a very hot piece of rock. It's not a liquid. Oh, yeah, I, I completely did think of it as a runny liquid, but that makes sense. And is it because people see, you're saying the, that convection occurs and people can't, it's hard to imagine that happening through a solid, or is it's, it? I mean, it's, it's a problem with timescales. So if you're thinking about timescales of millions of years, then there is convection within that solid mantle. Um, but if you think of it on timescales of, you know, years or hours or minutes, it's very much a solid. So we use we use silly putty as an analogy. So silly putty, if you if you leave it alone, it will kind of ooze and flow. But I don't know if you ever tried this experiment, but if you hit a piece of silly putty with a hammer, it actually shatters into a million pieces. So in the same way, the mantle on the timescales of human beings is a solid. It's only when you stretch that time scale out to millions of years that it starts to flow and we can support these convection cells. That makes sense. I've learned something new. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for speaking to us on the Jodcast. Thank you very much. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the weekend. Okay, so more geology there from Paul Denton. Um, yeah, yeah, so plates aren't really plates is what we're learning, or not plates in the way that we think of plates. Yeah, it doesn't. It does seem to not be a fantastic name for them, I suppose, no. but then I don't really know what you would call what them instead. What else do you call them? From what I can tell, that model of 
plates floating on a fluid does hold in some cases and can give you information about subduction yeah. you know, when one plate goes underneath another one and yeah. so on but just doesn't give you the whole picture yeah exactly that's something in science more generally is that trying to use the language that we have to describe things that we are still trying to understand exactly it's very difficult and yeah and language can really influence mm-hmm. uh, actually I read a really interesting paper recently um, about the language that's used to describe exoplanets and oh, a right. group of scientists actually think it needs to change because currently we're talking about planets that are in the habitable zone and using that as a metric mm-hmm. like to get excited about exoplanets but they're saying it's pointless because like they may be in the habitable zone but there might be no hope at all of ever picking up signatures from them so like Mm-hmm. Instead of focusing on habitability, that we should be focusing on detectability. So, like, yeah, no, that probably makes more sense. They yeah. have to be plants that we can get kind of spectroscopic data mm-hmm. from in order to have any hope at all of of detecting life there. And so, because these metrics are used to decide which things to look at closer. Yeah, that's true. And and to decide future missions to fund and, and decide, determine, yeah, but like, funding exactly, yeah. and especially especially when it comes to funding, you're often presenting to people who maybe don't understand what you do very well, mm-hmm. and so they just see, oh, this planet is really habitable, but what's not being mentioned is maybe we'll never really have a chance to have a good mm-hmm. look at it, though, or maybe it's not sending out kind of signals that we can detect. So, but anyway, that's another, um, another no, no, that's kind a of good tangent. Point, but yeah, yeah, but they just said, you know, the language that we're using just mm-hmm. really shapes how this field develops, and we need mm-hmm. to be really careful, um, mm-hmm. you know, and especially with exoplanets, there's so much room for hyperbole and for media hype, yep. and, you know, it's one of my little bugbears, really, and I think a lot of scientists would agree with me. Oh, and so actually, one, one, I mean, we, we're not doing odds and ends this episode, but one thing actually to mention is um, the first year results from the Dark Energy Survey came out uh, in the past they couple of did. weeks. And the way that this was reported in, I think it was in the mail, was um, scientists confirm universal end in a big rip or something oh, um, something re- I mean I'll try and f- I'll find the link they um, probably had us believing notes. that like this big rip was imminent <laughs> yeah exactly and it's like this the dark energy survey is amazing in its own right yeah and for so in so many other ways yeah. whereas and the th- one thing they chose to present it as is ridiculous to exactly, be quite honest exactly um, and like I'm all for kind of finding a human link and yes. room yeah. in, in, in a broader mm-hmm. narrative for results that we mm-hmm. get but like oh my god that's just ugh but Back to seismology, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is where this started. Pricked up my ears when I heard British Geological Survey because um, uh, they actually have a really cool website. And how I know about this is a whole big story. Um, so they have this really cool website where you can actually go on there and they've got real-time seismograms. So you can like click that. They'll show you a little map of uh, of the UK and you can click on like a station and it'll show you seismograms kind of more or less updating in real time from that from that station, which is uh, just really, really cool. And how I know about this is I was at home one time, it was quite late at night and I was a bit sleepy and I thought there was an earthquake. <laughs> I'm sure it was just a lorry going past or something. <laughs> what was that was that an earthquake uh, so I immediately started googling I thought something must exist mm-hmm. where I can check was that just an earthquake um, and sure enough um, I was not disappointed I went onto the British Geological Service website and uh, saw the real time seismograms it was not an earthquake um, unfortunately, unfortunately yeah. Yeah, no, there was, uh, well, fortunately I guess I guess yeah. fortunately yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say on that point as well actually in terms of you talking about the seismograms so one of the things I did find quite interesting at the British Geological Survey stand is they had a seismogram just made out of a 
Raspberry Pi. Oh, cool. And it was really, really <gasps> straightforward. Um, I, oh, my God. Yeah, I know. And it was it was the kind of thing that you could just make at home because uh-huh. I was like looking at this going, huh? how have I only just oh, heard about this now? I want one. I exactly. Want one. You can have one at home, your own personal seismogram. <laughs> I want to make one. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Do they have on their website how to do Possibly. that? Possibly. Anyway, so that's all the Blue Dot interviews that Monique did. I mean, I just, I, there was so much cool information. Like, I know it was a music festival, but mostly what I kind of I guess consumed at Blue Dot mm. was just information and there was from from the stands to like I was emceeing talks and I mm. learned so much from those talks like mm. I emceed one um, with her own Sarah Bridal who uh, is a cosmologist oh, yeah. but does like all this food stuff and she was talking about like the impact of food and mm. our food consumption on the earth and the climate and I got mm. to eat crickets Oh, really? Yeah, so she had crickets and maggots, and they were, um, I don't know, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not, your face isn't selling it to me right They were now. like crickets and maggots, they were crunchy. Uh, and slimy? They, no, no, just crunchy, because they oh, dried. Okay. Oh, okay, um, yeah. <laughs> So well, that was cool, and there was this really cool one who was talking about, like, how our travel and our airplane and freight um, and shipping industry mm-hmm. affects the climate, and because we always think of shipping as being the kind of benign one, and like, oh, wouldn't it be much better if we stopped using the planes and went around mm-hmm. the place and boats instead? but she was like actually no boats are also pretty bad oh really uh, but oh. they're talking now about like installing sails going back to like really? sails wow. on big cargo ships and like obviously it wouldn't be enough to power the boat all the time but like why not use and then use the that. engines as the backup How, yeah exactly so like she had these images these amazing images of like modern sailing ships wow uh, with like these big big sails it was just incredibly futuristic and kind of steampunk and I think that's so cool and I hope they do that for real because I think that would be amazing so yeah no it was just really really cool it was a fantastic festival and I recommend to all our listeners that that you go next year if you can. And I should say, hopefully this isn't the last you'll see because actually these weren't all the interviews. Ah. We've got at some point, hopefully, we'll put out another Blue Dot special with another five interviews on everything from sun worshippers in archaeology, um, including oh. really tall, really cool hats. Yes, the hats. The hats. <laughs> so I didn't actually go up and talk to them, but I could see their yes, hats. The hats from, are like, very the cool. whole field. There were these massive like, gold yeah. pointy hats. It's so cool. And we've got things on uh, mitochondrial diseases, Britain Breathing, which is a crowdsourcing app to study allergies, something about using... NHS healthcare data to save people's lives and even a little bit about social security in Brazil so there's all of that to come I'm not sure when because it'll probably be me putting it out but I am finishing my PhD yeah who knows when when you'll hear from either of us again next although this is not the last Jodcast that we're doing for sure but Um, we're busy 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 at the moment and everything's a little bit chaotic for both of us yes I think so (laughs) but yeah so there should be more stuff to come from Blue Dot and there's a couple of interviews that should make it in as a regular in regular episodes as well about uh, lubrication in space Uh, I'm just going to leave it at that and not explain all that is (laughs) (laughs) but it's very cool right well brief mention feedback to only say that we don't have any feedback everyone's on holiday it's don't true hopefully it's sending why, us postcards well yeah why aren't you guys sending us postcards if you're all <laughs> travelling around the place come on <laughs> um, sorry that came off very mean um, please please send us postcards we love to hear from you we do um, yes. we would love to see pictures of the nice beach in mm-hmm. Fiji that you were on or yeah. the they don't pretty... have to be astronomy related either exactly yeah. or the pretty hike yeah. in New Zealand that mm-hmm. you did or what are we there? Well, we add them to our wall uh, to our amazing wall of places mm-hmm. that we are not 
uh, but would like to be. <laughs> and, and hopefully we'll someday travel too. So, so the only thing left to do um, is to say thank you. So thank you to Vicky Dewar Fowler, Abby Stone, Kat Preslin, Isabel Large and Paul Denton for their fantastic interviews. And thank you to Monique for going out with your recorder in Blue Dot and doing those interviews. Oh, um, I had so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was like a blur for the whole festival, just going around. I don't know how you did it. You, you managed to fit so much in, uh, as well as, you know, doing your own performance. Uh, the editors were Monique Kenson, Adam Avison, Ian Harrison and Charles Walker. Uh, the producer was Monique Kenson. Until next time, jaw, jaw on. on.